Damaged Goods Podcast. Even when I was uh, an active musician, you know, recording albums and performing, um, I never really was snobby. I'm still not snobby about music. Oh, you like this person? Cool. You don't like this person? Whatever. I never uh, judged people on that and, you know, got to, you know, high on my horse. I've been very fortunate to have traveled the world. I, mean, I got paid to travel the world for years. And I have a, you know, a vivacious appetite. So traveling, you get to enjoy the cuisines of all these different places. Didn't matter. Five-star restaurant, some hole-in-the-wall stand on the side of the street, somebody's grandmother's kitchen. I'm not snobby with food. I appreciate, uh, you know, all types of grub. And, you know, I don't get too judgy, snobby on that. Even with, with writing and stuff like that, um, I'm not snobby about literature or poets or authors or any of that shit. But I think we all have at least like one thing we're kind of snobby about. And what is it for the snake, man, you ask Damaged Goods listeners? It's the pictures, kids. It's the movies, film, cinema. You know how you, uh, you know I'm snobby about that shit is because I used words like film and cinema. I took, you know, a, a couple film classes in school, worked in an indie video store, this and that. I don't know what exactly led me to become such a film snob, uh, but I, I am very critical, hypercritical of all film and TV. When I say TV, I don't mean like, you know, Friends or Seinfeld or General Hospital, but the programming on other networks where there's no commercials and it's kind of like a drawn-out movie. Uh, I'm, I am hypercritical of that. I, I do fancy myself somebody with an eye for quality and, and not just the quality, but like seeing bullshit, cheap shit, cheap writing cop-outs, visual uh, cop-outs, lack thereof of visual shit, direction, poor casting choices, things of that nature. So uh, I'm, I'm calling this episode Cinematic Snobbery. You like that? The alliteration, sin, snob, cinematic snobbery. Recently, I've been tweeting... And then posting these tweets on uh, Instagram, you know, my snake man synopsis of certain films and movies. My reviews, if you will. Sometimes the scathing ones seem to get more uh, reactions or laughs. Uh, I will preface this whole episode by saying, don't worry, ain't no spoiler alerts in here. If there is, I would tell you, I'm not an asshole. Now, if something's three years old, five, ten years old... Sorry to inform you, dude. There's no spoiler alert. It's, it's out there. If it's a week or two or even a month old, yeah. But either way, don't fret. No damaged good spoiler alerts on this one. But I've been doing this a lot lately. And I, I, depending on how this episode goes out, I might even make a little, a little spin-off podcast or reoccurring episodes of cinematic snobbery. Um, so I'm going to be a, a cinematic snob for a second. Put on my snobby clothes with... I don't know what that fucking entails. If you saw the attire I'm wearing right now, you would think I'm far from a cinematic snob. Uh, like Gene Siskel with a pistol, Roger Ebert with a... Ebert, whatever. Uh, but there's a couple, three, three movies I want to discuss that I've seen recently. One is Amsterdam, brand new movie. Uh, the second is The Hunt for Red October, which is an older movie. And the third is a brand new documentary um, called Dio Dreamers Never Die. Uh, so we'll go in order. Uh, the newest... Um, of these would be the Amsterdam uh, movie that you see. You see it on your HBO Max now. It was just released in theaters, I think, a 
two weeks ago, and now it's on HBO Max, and you know they're pushing it to the top, and they're recommending it, which to me is a signal. Like if you've got a big release movie, you know all the billboards and the fucking ads and trailers, and then it's straight on to a streaming service after it raises a red flag. Now the more indie films, uh, lesser known ones, not a big deal. They don't usually get the big budgets, the big you know studio behind them, networks of that name. But if it's a movie on a you know a larger scale, and it goes straight to streaming, it's kind of like back in the day if it went you know straight to DVD or came out on video very soon after. That wasn't a good sign. That means it wasn't doing great in the box office. They couldn't lure people in to fill the seats, so rather than make no money there, they you know would put it to video, DVD, whatever soon. So at least they could make some revenue on that. Uh, and I imagine it's similar for the way. They do the streaming shit. So um, Amsterdam is the new David O. Russell directed flick. Um, if you don't know David O. Russell, he's, uh, he's been nominated for a lot of Oscars for films like The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle. Uh, none of, he's never won any Oscars for like his specific nominations, but actors in his films have won Oscars for their performances. Uh, I think like Christian Bale. Jennifer Lawrence, um, I don't know, maybe some others. Um, but uh, it's a crazy cast. I mean, it's like one of those 12, 14 superstar, you know, actor casts, you know, probably five, six Oscar winners in it. It's very stacked. You know, it's Christian Bale, John David Washington, Margot Robbie, uh, Chris Rock, Robert De Niro, fucking Taylor Swift, everyone's favorite pasty tall white pop star. Uh, Michael Shannon, Matthias Sconarts, fucking who else? I mean, dude, there's a lot of uh, very, uh, Zoe Zaldana, a lot of very famous actors, a huge cast. And in all the trailers and the billboards, they're, they're pumping that cast at you, which, which can be good. There's lots of ensemble cast movies, which are great. Sometimes, though, it's like, okay, got a lot of, you know, a lot of big names in here. Some are having smaller roles. Um, but it felt to me, that he was relying on these big names, all this this big cast, and there wasn't a lot of meat. I will preface this by saying, Snake Man is not the biggest David O. Russell fan. I've been hypercritical of his more recent movies because he gets good stories, uh, good plots, you know, good scripts, great cast. He gets fucking some of the best actors, and I, I get let down, dude. Just not impressed, not satisfied. As if he's using those things, like I said, the big cast uh, are a great story to compensate for the lack of quality direction, you know? And like he just foregoes that whole aspect of the film. I mean, there's, you know, movies with not a bunch of famous people, a non notable cast. Uh, and maybe like, you know, it's not the, the script that was fought over in Hollywood, but it could be fire if it's directed well, if, if it's shot well. Um, I said a tweet that kind of inspired this whole episode about this film. And uh, I'll quote my own self. How fucking snobby is that for cinematic snobbery? Uh, on Twitter, I said, quote, David O. Russell's new flick, Amsterdam, was fucking horrible trash. The cinematic version of a lump of coal for a naughty kid's stocking. Tell someone you hate miserably to watch it for the holidays. Me and my girl watched it on HBO. We're not foolish enough to go to the theaters for this crap. Um, and I was already kind of going into it with uh, lower expectations 
because of my past experiences with his films. But I was like, okay, it's on HBO. And I love Christian Bale and a lot of these actors and this shit, like, you know, Michael Shannon and some of these dudes, even with small roles, I watch anything they do, even if I don't like the movie. Just like, you know, there might be some artist that you think is trash, but he got a guest verse from somebody you like, you're going to peep it, you know, just because you love what that dude does. Maybe 30 minutes, maybe 25 only, my girl and I made it. Then we didn't turn it right off, but, you know, I'm getting up and I'm, you know, brushing my teeth or my girl's going and cleaning the kitchen. We're not paying attention. It's not like, oh, can you pause it while I go to the bathroom? It's not on that level. It's, oh, don't worry, I'll be back. We're not engaged. We don't give a fuck. The story went nowhere. There's no compelling characters, whether you hate them, like them, villains, heroes, anything. There's nothing to draw you in. And I told my girl this, I predicted this, almost like uh, Snake Dradamus, um, before it started, that it would look like it was all shot inside. And it was. Um, There's a lot of like, most of it takes place in New York City and then Amsterdam. Uh, there's a lot of nighttime shots that take place in New York City. No daytime, nighttime shots. It looks like it's on a set out here in L.A. I've been on some of those film sets. You know, they make a couple blocks of a New York City or whatever. It looked just like that. The rest is all inside. There's like one shot where John and David Washington and Christian Bale are going to some fancy estate in like, you know, the countryside. It's daytime. There's actually fucking sunlight and green grass. Very quick. The rest of it... It's all inside, dude. It's like drab. There's like browns and grays and olive greens, and it's just, ugh. And uh, American Hustle was the same way. You've got this great story about these, these grifters, these con artists in New York City in the 70s, which is like the best time to film in New York. Um, and that was like the legendary film era. And it was all shot in fucking side, in an apartment, in a house, in a building. They barely shot outside. It was very depressing, very disappointing. Uh, David O. Russell's movie Joy, which I think came after American Hustle with, uh, what's her name, Jennifer Lawrence, and I don't know who else. I skipped it. I just didn't even bother because I, I, I kind of knew what it was all about. His movie The Fighter, I really liked. You know, Christian Bale won an Oscar for that. It took place in Lowell, Mass. I felt like I was in Lowell. It looked like it. There's a lot of outdoor shots. Um, and his movie Three Kings, which is, you know, that older one with uh, George Clooney, Ice Cube, Mark Wahlberg, Spike Jones, and they're in like Iraq, like getting out of the war, stealing gold, whatever. I mean, it was obviously shot in some desert area. That was good. That was old. And now it's like, okay, he's got this little method. He gets great actors in these scripts, and he just doesn't give a fuck about how it looks. And it's just so underwhelming. Visually, a movie can draw you in. There's films with minimal dialogue, a lot of Kubrick flicks. Nicholas Winnin Refn, one of my favorites, you know, Drive and... Bronson, he's minimal when it comes to dialogue, but visually it sucks you in. And if you have good acting, you know, you don't need dialogue to necessarily be a great actor. You know, dudes like De Niro built their careers off minimal dialogue, but you could still be engaging on screen. You know, you could command uh, your presence. And these are all good actors in here, but it's just fucking, it's not stimulating, dude. It's bland and underwhelming. So, Save yourself the fucking, I don't know how long it is, two hours. I mean, I wasted 30 minutes and that was probably too long. Don't even fucking bother. I can't spoiler alert this flick because I didn't get that far. It's fucking underwhelming. Great cast. It doesn't matter. The cast doesn't know how it's being shot. You know, it's like the 
if you're doing music and you have guest people coming on, playing a little trumpet on the song, singing a hook, a guest verse, they don't know what's going to be the final picture of the whole thing. They're just playing their part. The producer or the artist who's, who's making the whole thing, in this case, the director, they know how it's all going to come together. So by the time it's done, the people who went did their best, delivered what they had to, they don't really know what it's going to be like. So you can't, can't fault them. But David O. Russell, again, delivered another underwhelming fucking movie. Um, snobbery? I don't even know if that... I just That's honesty, man. And uh, if anyone has seen it and enjoyed it, fucking hit me up. I have a lot of friends whose film taste I quite revere and respect. And they were like, oh, Snake, you're brave, dude. I couldn't even do that. I don't know why I was feeling fucking froggy and thought it would be good, but it's not. It's not. So then, uh, in... In lieu of a lot of shitty contemporary movies, I've been watching a lot of old shit. 70s, 60s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, whatever. The Hunt for Red October. I've never seen it. Based on a Tom Clancy novel, like a lot of movies like Clear and Present Danger and uh, Patriot Games, a bunch of shit. Um, it's, it's based on that. And so I was like, okay, this will be, be all right. It's 1990. It's directed by this dude, John McTiernan who did uh, the first Predator, and he did Die Hard 1 and 3. Don't know why he skipped 2, but uh, 1 and 3. And these are action flicks. He did a few other movies. Those are probably the most notable. Um, but uh, it's a 1990 flick, which is the 80s was regarded not as the best decade of cinema, but the 90s is kind of thought of as the second best after the 70s. This is 1990, so we're on the, the cusp. We're just entering it. The uh, your protagonist is a younger Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin used to be more of a dramatic actor. He was known for his roles in drama before he got known for mostly comedic roles and shooting people. Uh, kind of like Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen started out as a dramatic actor in like Wall Street and Platoon before he did more comedic roles and became a, a full-on madman. So. Uh, it's about, you know, uh, a Soviet sub, because this is still technically Cold War. Uh, the Soviet, you know, the USSR has not fallen yet. A Soviet submarine is uh, encroaching upon the U.S.'s soil, and there's, you know, nukes or missiles on it. And uh, Alec Baldwin's character is like a CIA guy, whatever, that agent dude. Like, you know, they're trying to stop it or intercept it or whatever. Now aboard this Soviet submarine, you know, Russian submarine, with all these you know, uh, antagonists, or you, so you would believe. You have three big actors who consist of this. You got Sean Connery, who looks like my, uh, my mother's father, my Irish grandfather, rest in peace. You got Tim Curry, that you might know from Rocky Horror Picture Show, Clue, and I don't know what else. Then you got Sam Neill, uh, the original Jurassic Park. Sean Connery plays uh, Captain Marco Ramius, Sam Neill plays Captain Vasily Borodin, and Tim Curry plays Dr. Petrov. You got a Scotsman, Connery, an Australian, Sam Neill, and a British dude, Tim Curry, all playing Russian uh, naval officers. And it's all right, you know. Maybe if an actor's playing a, a different race or things like that, you're like, well, why didn't they cast somebody like that? But sometimes if it's, you know, it's white people, but they're of a different ethnicity and language. You know, they throw in an accent. It's all right. We forgive this a little. Um, I still think there's enough actors or aspiring actors where you can hire somebody specifically for it unless the person you cast happens to be 
fucking spectacular at the role, the accent, whatever. A Scotsman, an Australian, and a British dude playing three Russian naval fucking officers. I made it maybe 20 minutes. Maybe 20 minutes. Fucking no accents. You got these three dudes with these other accents. I'm supposed to like believe, buy that they're fucking Russian naval intelligence dudes. No accent attempts at all. It was, uh, dude, you, you come on, man. Lazy as fuck. Uh, I, it's probably doubtful you're going to get a living legend like, like Sean Connery to do an accent if he wasn't inclined. I imagine on set he's like, nah, I'm going to do what I want to fucking do. And I could deal with one bad accent or lack thereof, um, you know, in the flick. But for your three main antagonists to not have it? Are you fucking kidding me, dude? That's trash. I mean, if you think about Vigo Mortensen, the actor Vigo Mortensen. He was born in New York City, but he was raised in Argentina. Speaks English and Spanish nah, fluently. He's in the David Cronenberg classic Eastern Promises in 2000, and, I think, eight or seven. He plays a Russian mobster in the shit, specifically a Siberian um, mobster, a, you know, a Russian mob dude from the region of Siberia. He went to Russia, got familiar with the culture and the accent. He nails not only the accent and you know the language, but just the the stoicism, the the body language, the whole thing. He got really into it. He was nominated for an Oscar for it. You couldn't find anybody or get any of these motherfuckers to, to, to do a Russian accent. They just sound exactly like where they're from. It's pathetic, dude. It's really fucking, it's disappointing to say the least. Uh, I mean, technically the Cold War hadn't ended yet. Uh, the Iron Curtain would fall in 1991, a year after this. Maybe that's why they didn't ca cast any Slavic people. They didn't have to be Russian. You could have cast a Polish person, a Lithuanian, a Chechnyan, but nah, dude. Lazy as fuck, dude. Couldn't make it 20 minutes. I wanted to like it. I fucking couldn't, dude. Are you kidding me, dude? Lazy as fuck. Last on my list of cinematic snobbery today. Won't be so scathing. This is positive. We're going to end on a good note, man, a happy note. The Snake Man isn't all negativity, believe it or not. Um, Amazon Prime has the best selection of movies. Not their original movies, per se, but, you know, what movies they have on there. HBO got the best original programming, their original shows or miniseries. Fire. Uh, Netflix has got... I don't know, dude. Too many. And when I see the red end in the corner, I'm like, Ugh. Um, Showtime. Showtime got the best documentaries. The fucking best original documentaries. I mean, from all like fucking topics. A great one on Meta World Peace, Ron Artest. The Rick James one. The Rick James one is one of the best docs I've seen in years, especially music documentaries. Mind blowing. The, the Suge Knight one is incredible. The Sinead O'Connor one's fire. There's one called Operation Odessa about Russian mob dudes in Florida selling submarines and weapons to, you know, cartel guys that were giving it to uh, the Medellin cartel. Incredible. Um, the Cypress Hill documentary just came out. So good. They, they never miss with their docs. I think there's a fire Whitney Houston one. So uh, the other night, I'm, you know, trying to find something to watch. It's late. I'm kind of getting tired. And I see there's a new one called Dio, Dreamers Never Die about Ronnie James Dio, a heavy metal singer, vocalist. And I'm like, I'll just watch, you know, the first five or ten minutes, because it's late. Classic Snake Man, I'm up to 145, I watched the whole fucking thing. It's just, it was just that good. 
Ronnie James Dio is uh, often regarded by many as the greatest heavy metal vocalist ever. Um, just an incredible voice. He started front, you know, started off fronting his own band, Elf. Then he went on to have pretty decent success as the lead singer for this other band, Rainbow. It wasn't his, but he was brought in. And then after a few albums with Rainbow, he was let go because of the, the band wanted to go into a different sonic direction. So he like kind of reached almost star status and it looks like his dream is slipping away. Then, after that, he's asked to become the lead singer of Black Sabbath, the Black Sabbath, like the heavy metal fucking godfathers, to fill the shoes of Ozzy. In lieu of Ozzy's inoperability, he was you know kicked out of the band. Big shoes to fill. Like, how are you going to do that? It's almost like you're going to, you're fighting an uphill battle. You're going to be, it's going to be hard to impress motherfuckers. Goes on to kill it with like three albums with, with Sabbath and, and kills it. And then um, eventually he's, he leaves Sabbath with, you know, issues with uh, the band. So he's already reached stardom the second time. And so now he just makes his own band, Dio, to do exactly what he wants to do and Again, crushes it and reaches like stardom for the third time. Third time's a charm, at least for the first few albums. And then it goes on for a while. But uh, it's very inspirational. It's very moving. The man did not stop. He was an upstate New York kid. Uh, he was a crooner of all types. He was in like, you know, playing trumpet in like jazz bands and soul and doo up. He knew how to fucking sing, dude. I mean, this dude got some pipes. A lot of heavy metal fans, uh, I'm not weighing in on this either way. A lot of metal fans think that the best version of Black Sabbath is, is the Dio-led Sabbath over Ozzy. Even though the first, you know, three, four, five Sabbath albums are classic material and, and ill songs, Dio could fucking sing. He's very operatic. A lot of mystic kind of, um, I don't know, storytelling in his, in his lyrics. Great songwriter, but he could fucking just belt, dude. And you get dudes like Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden, Rob Halford, Judas Priest. They've got that same vibe. But dude, fucking Theo could sing. And just like pump me up, suck me in and watch the whole thing till late. And you don't got to be a huge metal fan to enjoy or appreciate the doc. I mean, I, you know, if you know about my shit, I fuck with metal shit. I used to work for a bunch of metal bands, some legends. But I mean, I'm, I'm a hip hop kid. That's what I grew up with. So I don't n know the whole realm of metal well, but I know Dio. And so I was like, yeah, let me watch this. And I fucking loved it, dude. It's very well-made documentary. And that's the thing. There's a lot like going back to Netflix, million documentaries on there. Not that many good ones, to be honest. A well-done documentary can make you interested in some shit you might not be familiar with or even be a fan of. I'm not the hugest sports dude no more. I watch ESPN 30 for 30s. I don't even fuck with soccer at all. Football at all. The Maradona doc, which I think was actually HBO, not Showtime. Fascinating, well-made documentary. I'm not a, like a Sinead O'Connor fan per se. Not not a fan, but not a fan. The doc on Showtime about her, fascinating, very well-made. It'll suck you in. See, it's not all scathing reviews on cinematic snobbery. No spoiler alerts. Or if you thought I spoiled anything about the Dio doc, it's a documentary, dude. It's a true story about a guy who passed away fucking 12 years ago. The shit's out on the interwebs. That's not a spoiler alert. But I highly recommend you watch that. If you really want to waste, you know, four hours of your life, watch Amsterdam and Hunt for Red October. Or if you don't care about shitty accents, watch it. Or terrible movies shot inside with the best cast. But, dude, 
Don't waste your fucking time. Maybe read a book. Pick up uh, The Waiting Room or Quicksand. My books available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all over my website. Follow me on the interwebs at Jake Frazek at J-A-K-E-F-R-A-C-Z-E-K on Instagram. At Damaged Goods Podcast at J-T-H-E-S, J the S on Twitter. Uh, like, review the podcast on fucking iTunes, blah, blah, blah. And um, I'll be back with some guests this week and some more regular damaged goods ones. But if, if you all like this and I get good response, we might do more cinematic snobberies, dude, uh, and get into that shit. So, yeah, get your rotten tomatoes extra rotten. Leave them in a brown paper bag. Pop on Amsterdam and whip them shits at your fucking TV and just get it all tomatoed up, dude.